0: Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at christfellowshipnc.org. So if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be in verses 13 through 22 this morning. And while you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's ministry. You guys that are participating in that can just make your way to the uh, room there. And our volunteer leaders will be there to greet you and Mm -hmm. instruct you in God's Word as well this morning. Uh, But again, in here this morning, we're going to be continuing through the book of Hebrews, looking at Hebrews chapter 11 verses 13 through 22. Uh, As we do every week, I'll read our passage for us and then we will pause and take a moment to ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of his word together. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful this morning for the privilege of gathering together under the truth and authority of your word. It is a good gift from you. And Father, we come in this room, all of us, myself included, we come into this room this morning as unworthy recipients of your grace. Father, let us pray that you would freshly remind us that we deserve what we deserve for our sins and rebellion against you is your wrath and condemnation but because of the finished and complete work of Christ that stands in our place because of his life his death and his resurrection because of his intercession that he uh, acts on even now for us because of the spirit that you have sent to dwell within all who trust in Christ you are at work in us this morning And so, Father, we're trusting you to do the very thing that you have promised to do, that by the power of your Spirit, through the truth of your Word, you would be at work in your people transforming us and making us more and more like Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me this morning, that you would help me proclaim your Word accurately and truthfully. I pray that I would lead no one astray, that my own heart would not be led astray, that we would uh, see the truth of your Word, that we would rejoice in it, that we would... See more and more of the glories of Christ and be transformed by it as we gaze at him. And so, Father, we are thankful for these men and women we've seen in Hebrews 11 and the example of faith that they are for us. And I pray that you would work in us this morning to help us to walk in their steps for the glory of your name. And so, Father, we pray all of these things. We ask that you would do all of these things for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' glorious and worthy name. Amen. Well, let's just begin by diving right in uh, into this topic of faith that we've been looking at now for a number of weeks in Hebrews chapter 11. So let me say this a few times so it kind of sinks in with us. Faith is essential in our relationship with God because the ultimate most glorious soul satisfying promises that God has made to us in this life are always awaiting us in the future so let me let me say that again and then we'll take a moment to unpack that and then we'll see how it connects to this passage Faith is essential in our relationship with God because the ultimate, most glorious, soul-satisfying promises that God has made to us in this life are always awaiting us in the future. Now, let's pause for a moment. Without question, there are promises from God that we get to experience in this life, right? Glorious promises that we benefit from on almost a daily basis. We experience His His peace and presence through the reading of his word and through prayer. He transforms us through the truth of his word, through reading scripture, through meditating on scripture. Christ himself promised to be with us even to the end of the age. He is with us each and every day. That is a promise from him that we get to experience right now. He's with us, interceding for us every day. The Holy Spirit groans on our behalf, Romans tells us, with longings too deep for words. God provides, he has promised to provide an outpouring of his wisdom to every one of his people who ask for it. That's a promise we experience right now. He gives us strength to fight temptation and brings us comfort and affliction. He forgives us our sins when we confess them to him as we just did during the prayer of confession. We don't have to wait to experience any of these uh, benefits of the promises that God has made to us. But as glorious as those promises are, and they are glorious promises, they are but a glimmer of the glories of eternity that await us. The glories of eternity where God has prepared for us a city right in the new heavens and the new earth, a city that Revelation says has no need of the sun or the moon to give it light. Because the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the lamb. That's the glory that awaits us in eternity. The the comfort that God gives us here, as glorious as it is, is nothing compared to the moment when we finally gaze at and see Jesus face to face for the very first time. The peace we experience here, as glorious as it is, is but an echo compared to the eternal place of God and the new heavens and the new earth where there are no more tears, no more heartbreak, and no more sadness. That eternal inheritance that awaits us, 1 Peter tells us, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Therefore, without hesitation, I say to us that the ultimate, most glorious, soul-satisfying promises that God has made to us always await us in the future until we die or Christ returns. Which is why faith is an essential part of our relationship with God. It's looking forward to that day, to those glorious promises that await for us in the future. And therefore, until that day arrives... Our relationship with God is filled with faith in those promises. That glorious eternity that has been secured for us, not by our works, not by our righteousness. That glorious eternity that has been secured for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Through Jesus coming in the flesh, living a perfect life in our place, laying down his life on the cross, taking the wrath that we deserved on himself so that through faith in him, all could receive the glorious promises of God for all eternity. It is an unshakable certainty. So the question that is pressed upon us is how is that future-looking faith? How, how does that future-looking faith shape our lives here What should it do to our lives here? We've seen over the past few weeks that this, this faith gives us the endurance we need, the endurance that the author of Hebrews at the end of chapter 10 says that we must have. We have need of endurance, he said to us in this life. And that endurance comes through faith in these future promises that will sustain us in the difficult days and the difficult days that the Hebrews that this letter was originally written to when they were being imprisoned and mocked and scorned and were enduring tribulation and persecution. We need this endurance. So we, we know that this future-gazing faith, that allows us to endure. But, but how does it shape our lives now? What does it do to our lives now? I think there are three answers that verses thirteen twenty two give us to that question. Number one, this faith gives us a longing for our eternal home. It gives us a longing for our, our eternal home. Number two, faith trusts God's promises above all else. It trusts God's promises above all else. Number three, Faith gives us confidence in God's future work among his people. It gives us confidence in God's future work among his people. So let's just look at those answers one at a time. Number one, faith gives us a longing for our eternal home. We're going to see this here in verses 13 through 16. First, let's just look at verse 13 again of Hebrews chapter 11. These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Now at first glance, at first read through, that sounds like a, that could come across as a pretty depressing verse, right? If we're being honest, right? You died and you never got to receive the thing you were hoping for. But let's dig in here and see what the author of Hebrews is actually communicating as he says these things to us. So so let's just work our way through this. So first we have to answer a really important question in verse 13. Who are these, right? These all died in faith. Who is the author of Hebrews talking about when he says that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised? Well, based on the description, giving in Uh, given to us in this passage that they acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Uh, We have those hints. We also know that this passage comes right in the middle of the narrative essentially of Abraham's life in Hebrews 11. We have Uh, uh, things about Abraham's faith and the verses preceding verse 13. It continues to talk about Abraham and the verses that come after uh, verses 13 through 16. So it seems the author was intentional in placing these words right here in the middle of the faith of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. So for all of these reasons and the fact that as we get to the end of this passage we're looking at this morning... Uh, verses 20 to 22 all deal with the end of life of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. It's these, all these men dying, not having received what was promised, but looking forward. So it's pretty clear that he's talking about these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, They, they died. These men died in faith, but not having received the things promised. So that's, That's who we're talking about. And what it means that these men never ultimately received the land that was promised to them. Remember we saw this last week in the life of Abraham. He was told to leave his home, to go to a land. God didn't tell him exactly what land. Just go. Go somewhere. When you get there, I'll let you know. And that's the land I'm going to give to you. And it says Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. But when he got there, he, they lived in tents. It never actually became Abraham's land. It never actually became Isaac's land or Jacob's land or Joseph's land. The promise was made. They believed in the promise. They died in faith still clinging to the promise. They didn't throw away their confidence as, uh, as the author alludes to at the end of chapter 10 when he tells us not to throw away our confidence. They they never threw away their confidence. They clinged to their faith that God would in fact deliver on his promises, but they themselves never got peace, right? That's, that's what it says, right? They the, the verse 13 says they, they saw them and greeted them from afar. There was a sense in which they, they got to experience it, right? Abraham actually lived in the land. He was intense, but he was there. He was present. When Sarah died, he, he bought a, the field of Ephron and uh, Machpelah. That was a little, a little nibble, just a little slice of the promised land that belonged to Abraham in his day. But in their day, the the land that God had promised them never actually was in their possession. In fact, as you read the Old Testament narrative, it will be hundreds of years, hundreds of years after the promise came to Abraham, before the land would ever belong to them. God's people would end up in captivity in Egypt for 400 years Before they were led out by Moses in the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, and then finally, as Joshua leads them into the promised land, they finally inhabit the promised land. So yeah, these men died in faith, not having received the land that was promised to them, the things that were promised to them. So how did they endure and persist in their faith? How did they cling to this faith when knowing the promise was always in front of them and never belonging to them? Well, what does verse 13 say? It says they had to acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were strangers and exiles. In other words, they acknowledged that this world, this earth, notice it says this earth, not the land, but any land in the earth, that this earth was not their ultimate home. And I just want to remind you when we read, most often when we read the New Testament authors commenting on the Old Testament, they're looking at the same Old Testament scripture passages that you and I look at, and they're seeing this in the Old Testament passages. So when it says that, that they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, and that, verse 14, that they spoke in this way, is because when you read the Old Testament, it's how they thought of themselves. It's right there in front of us. So, for example, Genesis chapter 23, verse 4, Abraham says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of sight. This is when he's looking for a place where he can bury Sarah and right there he acknowledges to the people of the land the land that God has promised to give him. He says to them, I'm a sojourner, I'm a foreigner. This isn't mine. I'm I'm a sojourner on this earth. I'm an exile. Or even Genesis chapter 47, verse 9. Jacob, at the end of his life, nearing the end of his life, he says to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few in evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, in the days of their sojourning. These men, these, uh, these fathers always viewed themselves as sojourners, as strangers and exiles in the land. And in fact, even King David himself, who sat on the throne in Jerusalem, in the promised land, viewed himself as a sojourner. Psalm 39, verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry, Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. They view themselves as sojourners and exiles on the earth. In other words, they never really made this world their home. Now, Verse 14 says, when they speak in this way, and we just saw that they did in fact speak in this way, for people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland, right? This is just a logical statement that the author of Hebrews is making. If you say you are a stranger in exile, then the place you are is not the place you are at home, which means you're looking for somewhere else to live. You're hoping you're going to find a home eventually, that it's gonna be yours. And so they made clear that, that this was not their homeland, but they were looking for one. Now then verse 15 goes on to say, well maybe, maybe they were just thinking about the home they came from, right? The land Abraham came from. Maybe that's what they were thinking of. But verse 15 says, no, that can't be the case. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, at any point, Abraham could have packed up his bags, packed up his tents, and moved back home. But the place he came from is not the home he was looking for. There was something else that he was looking for. There was something else Isaac and Jacob were looking for. What is it they were looking for? Well, verse 16 tells us. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." They're looking for something beyond this world. And I love that it says they desire, verse 16, they desire a better country. In the original language that word desire is a, a word that describes an intense longing for something. And it's a word that's in the present tense, which means in the original language, it is an ongoing, daily, habitual desire. They had an ongoing, deep longing for a better country. That is, for a heavenly one. Their eyes were fixed on things above. They wanted this city that God had prepared for them, that awaited them. And because they had that longing, verse 16 says that God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now let's meditate on that for a moment. That's a powerful statement, that God is not ashamed to be called their God because of the consequences of the opposite of that statement. I don't think anyone sitting in this room would want to say of yourself or have said of yourself that God is ashamed of you. I don't want you to say that about me. I wouldn't want him to think that about you. So how is it that these patriarchs position themselves in such a way that God was not ashamed to be called their God? Why was he not ashamed to be called their God? Well, There are two reasons connected to this. Number one, it's because they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, because of that desire, God is not ashamed to be called their God. But but notice this last statement, for or because he has prepared for them a city. Now that's a little bit of an odd statement. He's not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them. Now it does not say that he prepared a city because they desired it, because they earned it. No, it says he's not ashamed because he's already prepared the city for them. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying to us is that God prepared a city for these people, a heavenly one. And because they long for the city, they have this intense, deep longing for that city that he has already prepared. Because they long for that city that he made for them, he is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, what's the point that the author of Hebrews is driving at here by making this argument? He's simply showing us what he said to us last week about faith. That, those who, that, that faith believes that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith believes that God rewards those who seek him. So because they trusted that God is a rewarder of those who seek him by looking to the eternal city that he had prepared for them, he's not ashamed to be called their God because God loves it when we trust his promises. He loves it when we trust his promises. Promises. It exalts God. It brings glory to God when we shape our lives and our longings according to what He has graciously offered to us. So when God prepares a city for us, guess what? He wants us to want it. That brings glory to God to want what he has prepared for us, to desire it, to shape our lives, lives by it, to want it more than anything else we could want on this earth, to want the place he has prepared for us for all eternity. That's why Jesus said what he said in John 14, 1-3 to his disciples. Let, your heart, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You see, Jesus told us this because he wanted us to long for the place he had prepared for us. He wanted us to long for the day when he would return and bring us to himself so that we could dwell with him in his father's home that he is preparing for us. We're trusting that Christ will in fact come again. He will in fact come and take us to dwell with him. Therefore, we honor Christ, we glorify Christ by living our lives here as if this is not our permanent home living as sojourners and exiles, longing for and awaiting for that day when Christ returns and takes us to dwell with him. So the question that's pressed upon us from verses 13 through 16 is, are we walking in the example of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are being put in front of us this morning? Are we living our lives here as strangers and exiles, Are we living as if our ultimate hope is in eternity? 1 Peter 2.11 tells us that we are sojourners and exiles. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In other words, Peter's saying to us that if we live as sojourners and exiles, then we will not want the things this earth, this world has to offer us, the sinful desires of the flesh. They will be garbage to us. We will desire to put them to death because they're not part of the world to come. So the fruit of living as strangers and exiles is that we will do battle against sin. That we will put sin to death in our lives. We will abstain from the passions of the flesh because this world isn't our home. Listen, what greater honor could we desire than for God to say he is not ashamed to be called our God? Because we desire the city, the new heavens, and the new earth that he has prepared for us for all eternity. Because that's where we have fixed our hope not on the things of this world that are passing away, that are fading away, and that are defiled. So if we're going to live with the faith of the patriarchs, with the faith that God is calling us to live, if we're going to cling to the promises God has made, if we're going to endure and not throw away our confidence, then we have to live as strangers and exiles who hope in another land, And the eternity that awaits us in the new heavens and and the new earth. So future-looking faith gives us a longing for for an eternal home. But future-looking faith also, secondly, trust God's promises above all else. Trust God's promises above all else. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now, let's just pause there because I want to be sure that we know this story that's being referred to here. So, uh, when it talks about Abraham being tested and offering up his son Isaac, this, this account comes from Genesis chapter 22. And the first few verses of Genesis 22 say this This is God speaking to Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So by the direct command of God that we read about in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham takes his son Isaac To this mountain to sacrifice him. That's what's being referred to in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And as you continue to read in Genesis 22, it's exactly what Isaac does. He, uh, Sorry, it's exactly what Abraham does. He takes Isaac with him. He goes up on the mountain. He binds Isaac. It says he binds him. He lays him on top of the wood, on top of the altar, the wood that's on the altar where he will burn him. He lays him there. He puts his hand to the knife to slaughter his son, Genesis 22 says. And as he is in the act, as he is getting ready to obey the command that God gave him, it says that the angel of the Lord stayed his hand. And acknowledge the faith of Abraham. And when Abraham looks up after the angel stopped him from killing Isaac. He sees a lamb, uh, a ram, caught in the thicket. And he then sacrifices that ram instead of sacrificing his son. So that's a, a general accounting of what occurred on the mountain. But now let's, let's get into the details, the important details that the author of Hebrews wants us to see. So let's look there again. In verses 17 and 18 of Hebrews 11. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, who had, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now verse 18 is really important to get the full weight of what is happening in Genesis 22. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named be named, that promise was made to Abraham. So in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, and and again in Genesis 15, and he makes significant promises to Abraham. He says, look, through your offspring, I'm going to bless the nations. Many uh, nations will come from your offspring, Abraham. I'm going to give you all of these things, and Abraham waits and waits and waits, and and God never gives him a child, and eventually Abraham and Sarah get impatient, and and they think, well, this is never going to happen, and so they scheme up this own plot based on human wisdom, and so Abraham ends up having a child with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, and they have Ishmael, and Abraham's like, okay, well, here's the son you promised. And and God says, no, that's not the son I promised you. He's not the one. I'll bless him in other ways. Nations will come from him, but he's not the one, Abraham. I'm going to bring you a son. I'm going to give a son to you and Sarah. Even though Sarah has not been able to have a child, I'm going to do it. And they wait 14 years from that point before God comes and brings a son to them. At that point, Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old when she gives birth to Isaac. And God says to Abraham, this is the one. This is the one through whom I'm going to Bless the future nations. This is the promised offspring. Not Ishmael, not any other child. It's through Isaac. Isaac is going to be the one who is in the line of the offspring that had been promised from Genesis 3 forward. When God said to Satan that the offspring of Eve would crush his head. It is that offspring generation to generation to generation. And it is therefore the offspring of Abraham that would go through Isaac that leads to Jesus. That's the promise that was made to Abraham. So when verse 18 says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, that's the weight that is resting on this statement. Or as one commentator put it, Isaac is not to be thought of as simply one of the common company of men, but as one who contained Christ in himself. It is through the line of Isaac that Jesus would eventually, miraculously, and supernaturally come in the flesh into the womb of Mary. And yet he is the one that God told Abraham to offer as a burnt offering on the mountain. Now that's astonishing, isn't it? And yet Abraham... Obeys God, still somehow fully believing that God would keep the promise that he has made, even though Isaac has had no children. Isaac's a child. He's childless. So how in the world is Abraham going to have many offspring, as numerous as the sands of the shore, as many as the stars in the heavens, if his one child the promise is supposed to come from is going to be dead, and he's had no children? How would that happen? Well, verse 19 tells us what Abraham believed. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That's the confidence Abraham had in God's unbreakable, unshakable promises. Look, you promised that the promise of all spring is going to come through Isaac. I still believe you. You've told me to offer him as a sacrifice on the mountain, so I'm going to do it. But I believe that you are, are so faithful to your promises that I know that when I do it, you will raise him from the dead. Now, some might argue, well, how do we know that that's what Abraham believed? Is the author of Hebrews just making this up? Well, no, there's hints of it right in the text of Genesis chapter 22. Because Genesis chapter 22 Verse 5, before Abraham goes up on the mountain, he says to his servants, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy, talking about Isaac, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Now that's the ESV. It's not quite as explicit, but the original language is explicit because in the original language it says, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and we will Come to you again. We, me and Isaac, we're going to go up there. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to slaughter him with a knife. I'm going to burn him on the altar, and we're both coming back. That's the faith that Abraham had. He fully expected to go up on the mountain and for that to be exactly what was going to happen. In other words, Abraham believed that God keeps his promises no matter what. He trusted God's promises above all else in spite of any circumstances. No circumstance situation or even command from God himself could convince Abraham that God had gone back in his word or changed his mind, right? Abraham doesn't argue with God. He doesn't say, God are you sure you want me to do that? Because I thought you said it was coming through Isaac. Are you aware if I kill him that the promise is over and done with? Do you know that God? Right? He doesn't argue with him. He just says, you've made a promise. It's unshakable and steadfast. You've given me a command. You have all authority to do so. So I'm going to obey you. But in the midst of obeying you, I'm not going to doubt the promises that you have made. He trusts the promise of God above all else. Now here's the question that's pressed upon us. How many times in our life do we allow our circumstances to cause us to doubt the promises that God has made to us? All right, well, it's rare, probably never, that you face these kinds of odds, right? But we so easily forget God's faithfulness, faithfulness to us, how he has sustained us in days and months and years past. And when we hit the new trial, the new problem, the new circumstance, the new tribulation, we start wondering, is he going to come through this time? Is he going to be faithful to me this time? Is he going to sustain my faith this time? Am I going to get through it? This time, look, there's going to be times in your life and in my life when every human explanation would indicate that God is not going to be able to keep the promises that He has made to us. But what this passage says to us is even then, we can trust Him. We can trust Him. And that kind of faith requires us to have that eternal perspective of things in the future that we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. So for example, a a promise like Romans 8.28, right? It's a well-known passage that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's a promise. That everything that happens in the lives of those who are trusting in Christ are for your good. Everything. That's what Romans 8.28 says. There's no... Uh, there's no exceptions. It's just a clear promise from God that God's working all things in your life together for your good and for his glory. And you're going to look at your life sometimes and you're going to say, this doesn't feel like it's for my good. There's no way God is keeping his promise. That He's working this for my good right now. There is no way this is for my good. But when we have an eternal perspective, we realize that very often the the good that God is working may not blossom until we're sitting at the feet of Jesus. We may not know what it is that God is doing in our life. We may not know what it is that that trial, that that difficult Uh, period of our life was doing in us to sustain our faith so that we would make it to the last day with our faith intact so that we could endure and so that we would not throw away our confidence. We talked about this in our life group last week, but Tim Keller, who's a fairly well-known Christian author, uh, some time ago was diagnosed with cancer. He's not doing well, but he has said that he would not trade what he has learned about God and the sweetness of his relationship with his wife and the depth of his relationship with Jesus that has come as a result of that diagnosis. If he had to choose between not learning what he's learned and not having cancer, he said, I would take the cancer. Now, obviously, he would rather not have the cancer and still learn what he had learned, right? I'm not making light of of that kind of a diagnosis. But his point is, for, for him, and it should be true for all of us, that ultimately, if we're trusting God is working for our good, ultimately it will have all been worth it. And as Paul says to us, that eternal weight of glory is not worth comparing to the suffering that we endure in this life. That God is working for our good. But that means that we have to trust and keep our eyes on things above and trust that he always keeps his promises. Always. Even when the circumstances may seem to stand against us, just like it would have seemed to be standing against Abraham in this moment when he had to sacrifice his son on the altar. But he knew God would be faithful no matter what. So faith gives us a longing for for our eternal home. Faith, trust in God's promises above all else. And finally, number three, faith gives us confidence in God's future work among his people. It gives us confidence in God's future work among his people. Look there with me at verses 20 through 22. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So the common theme above, uh, among all three of these uh, men that have been mentioned in uh, verses 20, 21, and 22 is that they are at the end of their lives either blessing those who would live beyond their days or giving instructions to those who would live beyond their days. Now there's interesting things we could get into about the blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob and Esau. Remember Jacob uh, uh, deceived Isaac and uh, the blessing came to Jacob when really as Esau being the firstborn, it should have come to him or when um, Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph and Joseph intentionally arranges his sons so that Jacob's right hand will go on the older one and his left hand will go on the younger one. But Jacob crosses his arms and puts his right hand on the younger one instead of the older one. Right? There's all kinds of interesting things happening there that we could get into, but that's not, that's not what the author of Hebrews wants us to see here. What he wants us to see is that these men died giving a blessing to future generations because they believe God would continue to be faithful to those who came after them. What he wants us to see is that Joseph, at the end of his life, talked about the Exodus, that one day God is going to deliver on his promise and God's people are going to be taken to that land that he's promised them. And Joseph says, listen, listen, Israelites. When that happens take my dead bones with you. That's the confidence he has in the future work of God. And as I mentioned earlier, it would be well over 400 years between the time Joseph said this and when it finally happens. But all of these men died in faith knowing that God's promises and his work among his people would carry on into future generation after future generation. It's this same kind of faith that we need to have in God's promises to His people. Right? So, our, our confidence in God's promise to work through His word to sanctify his people is a confidence we can have that he will carry on to future generations. It's why we can center this church, right? Put at the very core of this church, the the truth of God's word that we believe we must be all about centering ourselves on God's word because we trust the promises of God that that very same reality will be needed for generations to come. That it's never going to change. It's why we are working hard by God's grace to establish a healthy church culture of humility and unity. A focus on the word of God, the gospel, discipleship, missions, and love for one another. Because Lord willing, that culture will outlast every person in this room. And God has promised to use those very things for his glory and the good of his people beyond our lives. Right, That's the confidence we can have when we invest in children's ministry and do discipleship in Awana on Sunday evenings. And the instruction that's happening right now in these rooms is because we believe God's faithfulness will carry on until the day Christ returns. Look, if the Lord continues in his patience for even another 200 years, then our names are going to be forgotten. Right? Let's just be honest. In 200 years, our names will be forgotten by the people of this world. But my deep desire and the desire of the elders of this church is that this culture will carry on. This culture we're seeking to establish, this faith that looks beyond our own lifetime and knows that God will be at work beyond our days. And we can rest assured that the gospel will still be the power of God for salvation 500 years from now. It's not gonna change so we can invest in it now because God's promises do not change. It's this gospel that we proclaim that Jesus came in the flesh, lived a perfect righteous life in our place that he willingly laid down his life on the cross, and he took the sins that we deserved for all who would trust in him. He took their sins on himself on the cross. He bore God's wrath in our place so that all who would look to him and trust in him would be forgiven and not have to face the wrath and the condemnation that we fully deserve. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will one day join him in that resurrection. That good news will still be saving people centuries from now. And we don't need to change it, we don't, need to, to, uh, we don't need to adjust the truth of the gospel. God's word, God's gospel will continue to keep and sustain his people if he waits another thousand years for Christ to return. You see it's our desire that the mission of this church is not some temporary, time-sensitive, culturally relevant statement. No, we believe the mission of the church will be what God is calling his people to 100 years from now, 300 years from now, and 1,000 years from now, however long it will be until Jesus returns. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus through gospel proclamation, biblical teaching, intentional discipleship, and love for one another that we may present all mature in Christ. That mission that God has given us does not change because his promises do not change. He has promised to be at work through the truth of his word. He has promised to save people through gospel proclamation. He has promised to help us grow in Christ as we point each other to Jesus and encourage one another and sing God's truth to one another and read God's word together as his people. As we love one another, he shapes us and conforms us to the likeness of Christ. And you see, it's through through that kind of faith that we can invest in these things now, knowing that these things will last forever. The faith God has given us is a future-looking faith. It is a confidence in eternal things that will outlast us. And we must anchor ourselves in God's promises And know that he will keep them above all circumstances and we can trust him to our dying days and into eternity let's pray together father we thank you for your faithfulness to us we thank you that you are a kind patient merciful grace-filled god we thank you for the good news of the gospel Father, I pray that you would sustain our faith, that you would keep our eyes fixed on things above, that we would have a rock-solid, unshakable confidence in eternal things. Father, even as in a few moments after we sing this song, as we observe communion together, I pray that it would be a sweet reminder of the completed work of Christ that stands in our place so that we can experience these eternal, glorious realities. Father, I pray as we proclaim your gospel uh, in partaking of the juice and the broken bread symbolizing the spilled blood and broken body of Jesus that we would have our eyes fixed on our future eternal heavenly dwellings in the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you for the truth of your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.